This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and on this 4th of July weekend on Face the Nation, we'll look at the challenges facing an increasingly divided America. President Biden's message after a week of consultation with our closest allies on the issues threatening global stability, all is well with our friends. The biggest threat to the worldview of America is from within. You haven't found one person, one world leader to say America's going backwards. America's better positioned to lead the world than we ever have been. The one thing that has been destabilizing is the outrageous behavior of the Supreme Court of the United States. He's not the only one angry with the Supreme Court as they conclude their most consequential session in years with far-reaching decisions on religion, the environment, immigration, and of course, abortion rights. He's hoping Democrats channel their anger and fear into support for his party in the November midterm elections. I share the public outrage that this extremist court has committed to moving America backwards. But ultimately, Congress is gonna to have to act to codify the row into federal law. We'll assess the impact of these rulings. The court did rule in favor of President Biden's plan to scrap a Trump-era policy to make asylum seekers wait in Mexico, clearing the way for more migrants to enter the U.S. We'll talk with Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas about how the administration plans to handle the influx. With rapid-fire local court decisions causing more chaos over where abortion is now illegal, we'll look at the state of maternal health in America. How can we keep our abysmal record from getting worse? Then, what's next for the January 6th hearings following Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson's stunning testimony? The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. We'll talk with a key member of the January 6th Select Committee, Congressman Adam Schiff, about the attempts to influence witness testimony unfavorable to the Trump administration. Plus, more of our CBS News exclusive interview with the new German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Welcome to Face the Nation. Thank you for joining us this holiday weekend. We begin today with immigration and the win for the Biden administration last week in the Supreme Court, that of the ending of President Trump's Remain in Mexico policy. To discuss that and more, we want to welcome Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas to this broadcast. Mr. Secretary, good morning to you. Happy early Fourth of July. Good morning and the same wish uh, to you, Margaret. Thank you. So what happens now that Remain in Mexico is going away? Are you ending this policy immediately? And what happens to those individuals in the encampments waiting right across the border? Margaret, we were very pleased with the Supreme Court's decision. So now, uh, in light of the, um, the favorable Supreme Court ruling, we have to wait for that ruling to reach the district court that issued an injunction preventing us from ending remain in Mexico. So we have uh, several weeks to go before the district court lifts its injunction. And until then, we are obligated by the district court's ruling to continue to implement the remain in Mexico program. And we will do so in accordance with law. So those people will still have to wait in the camps on the Mexican side of the border. But what happens to them next? Right now, they do have to remain in Mexico. And then uh, we will uh, actually continue with their immigration enforcement proceedings. Remember, when people are encountered at the border, they are just not merely released into the United States. They are placed in immigration enforcement proceedings. 
and that is what will occur uh, with these people. Their proceedings will continue in immigration court where they will pursue their claims for asylum and if those claims are unsuccessful, they will be swiftly removed from the United States. So Reuters is reporting that there are right now thousands of people who departed on Friday and are moving towards the U.S. border. Uh, what do you need right now? Do you need more personnel for Customs and Border Control? Do you need more equipment to tackle these smugglers that are exploiting these people? Margaret, uh, we are working very closely with our partners to the south, with Mexico, um, that breaks up very often uh, these uh, caravans of individuals uh, that seek to take that dangerous journey uh, to reach our border only to be met with the enforcement of our laws. We have said repeatedly and we continue to warn people not to take the dangerous journey. We saw so tragically in San Antonio, Texas, uh, one of the possible tragic results of that dangerous journey and so many people don't even make it that far in the hands of exploitative smugglers. And we continue to enforce immigration law as is our legal responsibility. You are saying right now, what I hear you saying is do not come, but those words are not being heard. People are moving right now. So the efforts to stop the root causes are not stopping them. This horrific trafficking, the worst smuggling tragedy in U.S. history this week with those individuals found dead in that trailer truck. That's not stopping people. Are you predicting that this is only going to get more significant from here, that we're going to go beyond the record surge in migrants? Uh, uh, no, I am I'm not predicting that at all. And, and in fact, in the wake of the San Antonio tragedy and our Homeland Security investigations uh, is the lead federal agency. Um, investigating uh, what occurred and um, working with the United States Attorney's Office and the prosecution of thus far four individuals who've been charged with that heinous uh, crime. We're working with our partners to the south because this is a regional challenge that requires a regional response. But they got past the U.S. The US border spoke. officials. Oh, so we have a multi-layered approach, uh, Margaret. We, of course, have our inspections at the port of entry with our sophisticated non-intrusive technology. We then have checkpoints uh, that are staffed 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The Laredo checkpoint in question, 10 to 14,000 vehicles pass through that checkpoint every day. So um, how did this, this smuggler get these alone, people across? 53 people died. These are very sophisticated transnational criminal organizations. Uh, they have evolved over the last 30 years. In the 90s, I prosecuted them and they were much more rudimentary. Now they are very sophisticated using um, uh, technology and they're extraordinarily organized transnational uh, criminal enterprises. And we um, are much more sophisticated using technology and personnel 24 hours a day. You know, we have saved more than 10,000 individuals this fiscal year alone in more than 400 vehicle inspections. Um, so uh, can a truck get through, uh, through sophisticated means? Sometimes yes, but I have to say we've interdicted more drugs at the ports of entry than ever before. We've rescued more migrants. We're seeing a challenge uh, that is really regional, hemispheric in scope, and we're addressing it accordingly. Mr. Secretary, I also want to ask you here at home about what we've seen in the past 24 hours. There's been this back and forth between state and federal uh, law enforcement regarding security to Supreme Court justices and protests outside their home. Does the threat go beyond picketing? Is it specific and credible? So we um, have seen a heightened threat envir environment over the last several months over a number of different um, volatile uh, issues that galvanize people on different sides uh, of each issue. We in the Department of Homeland Security uh, become involved when there's a connectivity between um, uh, the, the opposition to a particular view or a, an ideology uh, of hate, a false narrative, and violence. It is that connectivity to violence uh, when we engage and we are very mindful that the Supreme Court's uh, decision uh, in um, uh, reversing and overturning Roe versus Wade uh, has um, 
uh, really uh, heightened the threat environment, and we have deployed resources to ensure the safety and security of the Supreme Court and the justices. Before I let you go, I do want to ask you about what we saw this weekend up in Boston. A white supremacist group called Patriot Front marched through that city. They recently planned events, a riot in Idaho. You're seeing this far-right group, the Proud Boys, also disrupt events in California. How concerned are you right now about these militias? Margaret, um, I have said, and uh, this has been echoed by the director of the um, FBI, uh, that domestic violent extremism is one of the greatest terrorism-related threats that we face in the homeland today. Individuals um, spurred by ideologies of hate, false narratives, personal grievances, two acts of violence, and it is that violence that we um, uh, respond to and we seek to, of course, uh, prevent. Uh, we are in a heightened threat uh, environment. Mr. Secretary, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Margaret. We're joined now by California Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff. He is a member of the January 6th Select Committee and chairman of the Intelligence Committee. Good morning and good, morning. good to have you here in person. Thank you. Good to be with you. I want to pick up on what we just heard from the secretary when we were talking about this far right group, the Proud Boys. This was one of the militias involved in January 6th. And in this incredible testimony this past week from Cassidy Hutchinson, the former Trump uh, White House aide, chief of, to chief of staff Mark Meadows, she testified she heard conversations inside the White House about this far right group and another one called the Oath Keepers. Is there corroborating evidence to show that there was communication between those militias in the White House? I don't want to get uh, too far ahead of what we intend to present in our next hearings, but our very next hearing will be focused on the efforts to assemble that mob on the mall, uh, who was participating, who was financing it, how it was organized, including the participation of these white nationalist groups like the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, uh, and others. Um, and so we'll be presenting uh, information we have. Uh, we haven't answered all the questions that we have. Uh, we continue our investigation into precisely the issue you're describing. Hutchinson was specific in saying Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal attorney, was someone she heard talking about them. Well, and uh, this is one of the reasons we had uh, interest uh, in his testimony and have interest in the testimony of others. Uh, we obviously want to probe any connection between these uh, dangerous groups and the White House. Uh, I think we've gotten some answers, but there's still a great deal we don't know uh, that we're endeavoring to find out. It's an incredible allegation, of course. Um, so we'll track that. I want to also ask you, the vice chair of the committee, Liz Cheney, said not prosecuting former President Trump over the attack on the Capitol would be a much graver constitutional threat to the country than the political difficulties involved uh, with bringing charges. She said this in an ABC interview. She also said there are possible criminal referrals, not just one, but multiple do you agree? Uh, I do. I do. Uh, you know, for four years, the Justice Department took the position that you can't indict a sitting president. Uh, if the department were now to take the position that you can't investigate or indict a former president, then a president becomes above the law. That's a very dangerous idea that the founders would have never subscribed to. Uh, even more dangerous, I think, in the case of Donald Trump. This, you know, Donald Trump is someone who has shown when he's not held accountable, he goes on to commit worse and worse abuses of power. Uh, so I, I agree with uh, Judge Carter in California. I think there was evidence that the former president uh, engaged in uh, multiple uh, violations of the law, uh, and that should be investigated. But there will be a political calculus to this as well. This is an incredibly divided country right now. Millions of people voted for the former president and still believe wrongly that he won the election. Prosecuting him, isn't there a very high risk to that? You know, it's certainly not a step to be taken lightly at all. Uh, at the same time, immunizing a former president uh, who has engaged in wrongdoing, uh, I would agree with our vice chair, I think is more dangerous than anything else. Uh, and the decision not to move forward with an investigation or not to move forward with the prosecution because of someone's political status or political influence or because they have a following, to me, that is a far more dangerous thing to our Constitution than following the evidence wherever it leads, including when it leads to a former president. Uh, your colleague, uh, Adam Kinzinger, was on another program this morning and said new witnesses have come forward since Cassidy Hutchinson testified. How many, how significant, is there more new information that requires more hearings? Um, you know, I think there's certainly more information uh, that is, is coming forward. 
Uh, in terms of whether that will materialize into particular witnesses on this topic or that topic, um, we're going to wait and see, uh, but we are following additional leads. Uh, I think those leads will lead to a new testimony. It's part of the reason we wanted her to come before the public is we were hoping it would generate uh, others stepping forward, seeing her courage uh, would inspire them to show the same kind of courage. Has she inspired the former White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, to take up the request to speak to him again? I hope so. Uh, we're in discussions with uh, Mr. Cipollone's uh, counsel. Uh, I'm hopeful that we can work out uh, bringing him in for uh, testimony. Um, he clearly has information about uh, concerns about uh, criminal violations, uh, concerns about the president going to the Capitol that day, uh, concerns about uh, the chief of staff having blood on his hands if they didn't do more to stop that uh, violent attack on the Capitol. Hard to imagine someone more at the center of things um, and I hope that he'll demonstrate the same courage uh, we saw Cassie Hutchinson display. Who is attempting to intimidate the witnesses, as, as Congresswoman Cheney said? And, and how significant are the security threats against Hutchinson? Uh, you know, I have to imagine the security threats are very pronounced. Uh, certainly our members are feeling them and hearing them. Uh, I have to expect the same is true of her since uh, the former president and his uh, enablers are going after her. Um, we want to make sure that uh, she is safe. Uh, we have several concerns. We have the concern over safety of our witnesses. Uh, we have concern over people who are trying to influence or intimidate witnesses. Who's we, doing that? Um, you know, I, I can't comment on specifics, but, but you know. we, we wanted to let the country know uh, and anyone in the former president's world know uh, that if they seek to intimidate witnesses, uh, they will be referred for prosecution. Uh, and we hope the Justice Department will move against them. But we also have a concern about the fact that some of these witnesses are sharing lawyers uh, that essentially, and this gets to some of the testimony we revealed during the Cassidy Hutchinson uh, hearing that they're reviewing transcripts, that they're uh, uh, essentially coordinating potentially their stories or that witnesses feel they've got Big Brother watching when they sit in for their depositions. So on that, I want to ask you that one of the things that Cassie Hutchinson described having been told by another individual was about this uh, tussle in the beast, the president's vehicle, where he allegedly lunged for the wheel, demanding to be taken to the Capitol. The committee's already interviewed Tony Ornato, the White House operations director, and Secret Service agent Robert Engel. Um, was this the first time you heard about that incident? Did they back that up or contradict that testimony? I can't go into the specifics of the prior testimony, but I can say I think we'd be interested in having them come back uh, and others uh, that can shed light on this. But, but the most important thing is there doesn't appear to be any dispute over the fact the president was furious that he could not accompany this armed mob to the Capitol. That seems to be undisputed. And the fact that the president knew that the mob was armed, wanted the magnetometers down so they could take their arms to the Capitol. Uh, that doesn't seem to be disputed by anyone except Donald Trump. And he has, as we've seen in the past, no credibility at all. Quickly, before I let you go um, with your intel ha hat on here, uh, the bullet that was used to kill American journalist uh, Shireen Abu Akhla has been handed over to the United States. It's undergoing ballistics testing right now. If Israeli soldiers did indeed kill her, what consequences should there be? Well, I think there needs to be an independent investigation so we understand uh, exactly what happened and who was responsible and, and, and why. Uh, once we know that, then I think we can talk about what the consequences should be. But I do think there needs to be an objective investigation, and I'm glad that the United States can help play a part in that. Congressman Schiff, thanks for your time. Thank you. Face the Nation will be back in a minute. Stay with us. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. 
just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The Supreme Court ended its term with a number of historic and some controversial rulings. For a breakdown and a look at what comes next, we turn to CBS News Chief Legal Correspondent Jan Crawford. You have been incredibly busy, Jan. Um, We had a number of these decisions this week that reflect the will of the conservative majority. President Biden called them extremist, an extremist court. How do you characterize the decisions? Well, I mean, this is a court that has shown it is clearly turned firmly to the right. And it could have sweeping implications for American life, the democratic process. Taken together, what we've seen this term is that this is a court that is not going to get involved in these divisive policy issues unless that is, you know, clearly within its purview. If it is not uh, specific, specifically mentioned in the Constitution, then that goes to the democratic process. That's what we saw in the abortion rights case, overturning Roe versus Wade. It was not specifically mentioned. Therefore, we're not going to resolve it back to the democratic process. And if Congress can't do its job and Congress isn't acting, this is a court that says, Administrative agencies and unelected bureaucrats, they can't jump in and fill those vacuums if Congress isn't acting and try to set major policy questions. That was the case involving climate change and the EPA. So, I mean, the bottom line is this court, unlike a more liberal court, is not jumping in to fill these vacuums where Congress or the legislatures are failing to act. And that is going to mean a profound difference uh, in the democratic process and the rule of the courts. Because it's not clear. It's not clear if lawmakers will take up these issues. With dysfunction in Congress, absolutely. Uh, But they're saying the ball is in Congress's court uh, or the state legislatures when it's a policy dispute if it's not specifically addressed by the Constitution. So to that point, uh, because now we are seeing all these states, their courts, their legislatures have arguments over what to do next, particularly in the issue of abortion. Um, Kentucky, Florida, Utah, Louisiana, really significant legal battles taking place about abortion protections. What is your takeaway so far? I mean, is there a commonality to where they're ending up? Right. So, you know, remember, 26 states asked the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade and let them set their own policies on abortion rights. And that's what we're seeing now. The court agreed. Uh, And we're seeing that play out across the country. Already states, uh, almost a dozen states, had laws in place ready to go uh, to to completely ban abortion in their states. So you're seeing abortion rights advocates go into those states and file lawsuits in state courts under state constitutions, because the Supreme Court said it's not in the federal constitution, Mm -hmm. but if a state has more protective uh, rights in their constitutions, then work it out there. And so that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing these legal battles play out as as the same time as the state legislatures are passing their own laws, blue states uh, passing laws to enshrine abortion access or protect it even more, for example. And the chaos has led to some people mistakenly thinking abortions banned or something. That's it's not a striking thing. I think um, the Supreme Court did not ban abortion nationwide. They just said there's not a right to abortion right. in the Constitution. Therefore, it goes back to the democratic process and states can set their own policies. If Congress wants to do something, Congress can, but it's not in the Constitution. So now you've seen this patchwork of laws and you're seeing legal challenges under state constitutions, but you're going to see different laws in different states. If you're in New York or California or Boston or Illinois or any of those Democratic states, this ruling will not affect your life at all. The laws in your states won't change. It's those red states uh, that we see that will try to ban or greatly restrict abortion. We will follow that. We already are seeing that. I want to ask you about what's coming. Oh, (laughs) Oh, yeah. Why do you say, oh, God, that's not a good reaction, Jen? um, As big of a term this was, and of course, whenever the court overturns a nearly 50-year-old precedent, uh, as they did with Roe versus Wade, next term could be as consequential, divisive, Uh, as this term, or more so. They have major cases already on the docket. They'll continue to add them throughout the year. They've already got a case challenging affirmative action in college admissions. I expect the court is going to end that. Um, They've got a case involving kind of a conflict between free speech and gay rights and whether a Mm -hmm. state law can prohibit someone from saying on their website they oppose same-sex marriage and don't want to do that business Mm -hmm. uh, in designers and artists. They've got voting rights. They've got an election procedure case that could have huge implications uh, for elections. I mean, this is just the beginning and a new justice stepping in 
to a divided court. Mm -hmm. New justice. Jan, you'll be back with us a lot, I understand, (laughs) based on what you just sketched out. Thank you for your analysis. Last week, we traveled to Madrid to speak with the new chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz, during a week of international meetings among top U.S. allies who are faced with a growing list of problems, including rising food and energy prices exacerbated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Chancellor Schultz is one of the few European leaders who still speaks to Vladimir Putin. So that's where we started our conversation. When you speak to Putin, does he acknowledge the sanctions? Does he acknowledge how much his economy has been hurt? Or does he just not care? I think he cares, but he will not really admit it. So you get some... Because it idea, hasn't stopped him. You get some idea that it really is hurting him and that he understands the deep impacts of our sanctions on his economy. And uh, I'm always mentioning it because it's necessary to say it. This is now happening to a country that is not that advanced, that is really needing all the technologies from the rest of the world for having a similar standard of living and for having the chance to be part of a growth in the world economy. And this is now the real damage to the Russian economy, that they have no chance to do this. When will Putin run out of weapons, run out of funds? Or can he, this continue for years? No one really knows. He, has, uh, he is, he is uh, the, hat, the leader of a very great country with uh, a lot of people living there, with uh, a lot of means. And he is really doing this brutal war with uh, and, and he prepared for it. So he will be able to continue with the war really a long time. Do you believe that Vladimir Putin will stop at Ukraine? I think that all what we do will help to give him the view that this is not working and that he will not be successful. Your country has earned this reputation of overpromising and underdelivering when it comes to Ukraine. Ukraine received its very first delivery of German howitzers, this artillery, last week. Why did it take that long? We're in the fifth month. So we took a very, very hard decision to change political strategies we followed for many decades, never to deliver weapons into a country that is in a conflict. When we decided, for instance, to send the most modern howitzer, which you can buy on the Mm -hmm. world market, which is in use in Germany, it was very difficult to organize that this could be used in the war because you have to have some training. And we had Ukrainian soldiers in Germany and when the training ended, in the end they came with the weapon, with, uh, with the howitzers to Ukraine and they but are now But the United States is doing that. They're providing weaponry within 48 hours sometimes of the president signing and carrying out training. Why think, did it take this long for Germany? I think you should understand that there is a difference if a country like the United States spends that much for defense, which mm-hmm. is a very big uh, investment, mm-hmm. and you have a lot of uh, weapons at your stocks. Together with the United States, and the United Kingdom, we decided to deliver um, multi-rocket launches to Ukraine now, which are... Those haven't been delivered yet. We are sending them and we are doing it with the means and ways we have and with the training. And once again, there are a lot of very experienced people who yesterday looked at Google and today they know how to do things. But I will tell you there are weapons where you have to have your training and you have have to have it uh, not in Ukraine, you have to have it here in in our countries. And so we will always see that Germany is one of the countries that is doing the most, because what we are sending now is the most sophisticated technology you can Mm -hmm. use. There is also anti-ballistic, there are also uh, weapons we give to uh, to the Ukraine that they can defend the air the anti-aircraft missiles you the, the, promised, the, uh, radar. No, no, no they, they can defend a city from against uh, the, the rockets and missiles mm-hmm. that were sent there from Putin. And this is very expensive and very effective technology, but they will get it. The delays have led to speculation that it's not about getting the supplies. It's about the will of the government to actually deliver them. Um, and whether there's fear of provoking Putin or whether it's years of budget cuts to your defense industry that have made it just not possible for the German military to act quickly. How do you respond to that? Those who are looking to the facts see that we are doing 
what is feasible. We are changing the way how we spend money for defense and mm -hmm. this is the big increase which will change the situation and will give us the chance to be more quick in reaction to a threat that is coming to NATO, the alliance or to our country. Germany is providing about two billion in aid to Ukraine. That's roughly what you spend per month on gas from Russia, on coal, on energy supplies. So while you're helping the Ukrainians financially, you're also essentially giving Vladimir Putin a financial lifeline. He cannot buy anything from the money he's, he's getting from us because he, will, he has all these sanctions on imports for modern technologies and things he is looking for. So this is what is making very angry. But to be very clear, when we decided on sanctions together and with all our allies, we said always we will do it in a way that we harm Putin more than us. Mm -hmm. And many countries in Europe are depending for historical reasons and because they are near to the place and it is the nearest place to get the gas on the imports of gas. And when now whole Europe is deciding to go out of this uh, dependence, this will change the scenario even on the world market. But Vladimir Putin can use that money elsewhere, uh, just not in the West. But so he cannot is buy... Is it still two billion a month that Germany is sending to Russia? It is always decreasing and we draft the sanctions in a way that they hurt Putin and this is what we do. And once again, we are now doing real investments into technology, in pipelines, in ports. Mm -hmm. And I know there are people that sometimes think that when you are having taken a decision one afternoon, the next morning you have a port and a 40 kilometers pipeline. Oh, it takes but time. in the real t life, this is not happening. When Europe is deciding to go out of the import of, of gas from Russia, mm -hmm. this will have consequences. It'll have you. I mean, this is the equivalent of them declaring war on you this by is cutting gas supplies to Germany. This isn't just your choice. They're using that as a weapon against you. This is obviously the case, and this is why I was starting to discuss the question what to do if the gas delivery will be reduced right when I entered office. We should be very much prepared that we will have high energy prices all over the world in all countries. So Germany's uh, heavy industry association, BDI, warned a halt in Russian gas deliveries would make recession inevitable. It is not. An, it will be very tough if we will have uh, a shortage of energy supplies. Obviously, all our countries, all our, all our life is depending on, on the supply of energy. And uh, obviously, a lot of countries, the most countries of the world, are depending on the supply from abroad. And so we have to prepare for a difficult situation. Vladimir Putin is, is weaponizing inflation. He's weaponizing food. Is he right to bet that he can fracture the Western alliance by making it harder for Europeans and Americans and everyone else to afford food in these months ahead? You are very right. The shortages of food many people in the world are seeing now as a threat to them are the direct consequence of Russia's aggression against Ukraine and the war he is imposing on the country. You are right that uh, all the rising energy prices are also a direct consequence of his doing. And he is, he is the one that is, is doing the wrong things. And we are always discussing this with our partners on the globe. We are starting an initiative to support countries that have not enough food with food. If you can't reopen the Black Sea ports, if Putin doesn't agree to let the food out of Ukraine, how do you lower global food prices? We are now collecting money for supporting the poorest countries that they will be able to deliver food to their people. And this is our international initiative. We, we organize together with others for food security and we will continue to do that. But it risks global instability. It is a real problem and it is a real consequence of Putin's war. And this is why it is even more necessary that we support the people. So it also puts pressure to end this conflict sooner. What is your timeline for when this can end? The conflict will end when Putin understands that he will not be successful with the idea to just to conquer part of the territory of his neighbor. Members of the German government have admitted it was a mistake to be so dependent on Russia for so long. 
I think it was not right that we were not prepared to have at any time the chance to change the one that is delivering gas, oil and coal to us. So we should have invested all over Europe in an infrastructure that gives us the ability to change the supply mm -hmm. from one day to the other. And I think this is the lesson that has been learned in Europe and in many other places that you have to prepared, be prepared for a situation like this. President Biden also talks about this potential conflict between democracies and autocracies. Is that the biggest threat on the horizon? We should be clear about the threats that are coming to, to our future. And this is coming from autocracies, yes, mm -hmm. because they tend to be aggressive. And this is an aspect we should be very much aware of, and I am. And this is why I organized our meeting we had in, in Germany with the D7 group of democratic economically successful democratic states that we invite partners from all over the globe that are also democracies for making it happen that the democracies are strong. Mm -hmm. And by strong it also comes with 100,000 US troops in Europe and 300,000 NATO response forces in Europe. This isn't just diplomacy, this is muscle. This is and it's necessary. Mr. Chancellor, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. Our full interview is on our website and our YouTube channel. We'll be back in a moment. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Leaders at the G7 last week pledged an additional $4.5 billion to address what the Secretary General of the United Nations is calling an unprecedented global hunger crisis. But aid organizations are warning it won't be enough as Russia's war in Ukraine severs supply lines and inflation continues raging. CBS News foreign correspondent Deborah Pata is in South Sudan with this report. Hunger is a never-ending season in South Sudan. For three years, this country has been battered by one climate change shock after another. Apocalyptic flooding in the north, crippling drought in the southeast. Millions were already starving. Then came the war in Ukraine, triggering the UN's biggest humanitarian crisis this century as food and fuel prices soared, tipping this country over the edge. In wheat, floodwaters have still not receded. I'm standing in a place where people used to live. These were their homes. This was the land that they used to cultivate and live off. And now, it's completely submerged underwater. Sarah Nyawal's entire village is gone. She has nothing to eat but the water lilies she's collecting. In the community of Canal PG, every child brought to nutritionist Mona Sheikh during our visit was severely malnourished. I'm afraid, you know, any child like that, we are very close to losing them really? within days. There was Nyanjima Gatlak, who walked for over a month to get food for her weak and listless eight-month-old baby Kang. And Nyobani Kong, who's already lost one child to hunger and hasn't eaten for two weeks. Her mother-in-law Nyakoni is wasting away. Battling almost impossible odds, the World Food Programme is doing its best. But since Russia invaded Ukraine, their costs have risen 
exponentially. WFP's Marwa Awad says they've been forced to suspend aid to nearly 2 million of the 6 million people they feed here. Uh, we're having to do humanitarian triage. This is the worst thing that any humanitarian or aid worker has to do. We must do something to help. Subsistence farmer Nachapara Lemuria's own mother starved to death. This was her last bag of food rations for the year. It will be finished in two weeks. Just tell the world we need food, she implored. And when you visit again, she said, we will smile and tell stories of how we survived and find ways to help others in need. No one should die of hunger. There's enough food to feed everyone on earth. The stories we heard continue to haunt us. The people of South Sudan, the world, must not forget. Deborah Pata reporting in South Sudan. We'll be right back. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. According to the Gates Foundation, the maternal mortality rate is higher here than in any other developed country. And the elimination of federal protection for abortion rights only underscores that reality and the risks ahead. Dr. Henning Tiemeyer is the director of the Maternal Health Task Force at Harvard University, and he joins us now. Good morning to you, doctor. Hello, Margaret, and good morning. I think this is incredibly important because I want to put the issue of abortion itself aside for a moment and talk about pregnancy in America as these states rewrite these laws. So how is it possible that in the richest country in the world, we have the highest maternal mortality rate? And how do we stop it from getting worse? Well, I have to say two things to that. First of all, there seems to be an issue with the data. We think it's higher than in other developed countries, so it is higher. Some of the uptick we've seen recently is partly due to poor data collection. So that has been corrected, but it is higher. So why is it higher? Um, we think that has to do with the general health of women in America. So it is a background risk, and it is partly due to poverty, to poor health care during pregnancy, and importantly, poor care after pregnancy, after delivery. It, the mortality rate among black mothers is three times higher than white women. Why? That is correct. It is much higher. It is substantially higher. And um, it is, you must understand that there's about 700 women dying during or after labor or in the first months after delivering 700 per year. And we know that most of these deaths are preventable. And they indeed occur in minorities more often, and in particular in black women. And why that is, is essentially one of the biggest challenges of public health. And we see that as the top of the iceberg of poor health in women and poor health in black women. And there are several reasons. There seems to go from poverty to discrimination to poor care for this group of women. So according to the CDC, nearly 40% of all abortions uh, performed in this country happen among black women. So in laying out what you did, um, I would base the assumption that you are projecting that the death rate for these mothers will also climb? I don't think 
we have good projections in numbers at the moment because that will depend on many of the issues actually that you touched on before on the legal issues on the access to abortion in other mm -hmm. states but we know that abortion occurs in people of poverty and minorities much more often we know that they have difficulties to access abortion outside the state so we think it will impact their physical and mental health how many deaths nobody knows it is yeah. very hard it will it will it's i wouldn't want to quantify that i no. couldn't put a number um, it depends on so many other things um, yeah so you know we looked at um Medicaid coverage in this country, it covers about 40% of all births in the country. And the federal government is trying to get states to take more money to extend maternal health care. So it's not just cut off at two months, but it goes for longer. So women can get pelvic exams and they can get other things after they give birth. States like Mississippi aren't doing that. What's the consequence if you don't have access to health care after two months? So... What you're pointing out now is one of the big issues and one of the things that could be addressed quickly. Um, there are numerous states, Mississippi is one of them, but don't forget Texas is another one, and that counts in big numbers, that have not expanded, as we say, Medicaid. They have not accepted the Affordable Care Act offer to expand health care to women in the first year. And I would actually say it should go further than that in the first year after delivery. That means that you have very little right and very little coverage. So only the very, very poor in these states are covered, but a big number of poor women, of relatively poor, low-income women, women that struggle to make the time and the money to be insured, um, are not covered for things like mental health, physical checkups, even um, so they will not have the pelvic examinations that are needed, you're right. So America looks a lot different now than it did in 1973. Brookings says about 40% of U.S. households have women as the prime breadwinner. So I want to ask you how important it is, um, in your view, from a medical perspective, that women be able to take recovery time after childbirth. Uh, because, of course, as you know, in this country, there is no federal guarantee of paid family leave. So if these women have to work to support their family, their jobs in question, essentially, or at least being paid for it. I think this is such an important issue. It's in a way under-recognized. I know that the vice president addressed some of this, but it is very important to see that we need many measures to improve maternal health. Uh, one of them would be to improve the prenatal care, and the other is indeed to improve postnatal care, but also to support families, and it is in particular poor disadvantaged families, buying them time. So giving them leave, paid leave, is very important because having a child is a stress on the system. Imagine you have three children, you yeah. have a fourth one, then you need, you know, you're making a minimum loan, you will not manage to, to make your ends meet. You will not find yes. the time to breastfeed. We see that breastfeeding mm -hmm. is, is not going up as we wished it would um, right. because of this. So I argue Doctor. yes, and many of my colleagues, that we need time. Yes. And we will continue to cover your research. Thank you. We'll cover those issues on this program as well. I have to leave it there, though. So we'll be back in a moment. Here in the nation's capital, we are surrounded with reminders of the challenges our forefathers faced in times of great conflict here at home and abroad. There are tributes to those who fought for America's freedom from tyranny, to those who led Americans through some of its darkest times in our 246-year-old history. There are collections of the histories of oppressed minorities who fought for equal footing among their fellow Americans, and monuments to the titans who fought for equality and justice, a fight that continues to this very day. Sprinkled throughout, there are bits of wisdom from these giants. When we look at them today, one might think that maybe they knew where we were headed. They seek to establish systems of government based on the regimentation of all human beings by a handful of individual rulers. Call this a new order. It is not new, and it is not order. We can gather strength from looking back as we struggle to go forward. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. In time, only history will know how today's turbulent times will turn out. 
But on this 4th of July, we thank those who went before us and left us some words to live by. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Happy 4th of July. Today's guests were Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas, Congressman Adam Schiff of California, our Chief Legal Correspondent Jan Crawford, the Director of the Maternal Health Task Force at Harvard University, Dr. Henning Thiemeyer, and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation's also on our digital network, CBSN, at 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern Time every Sunday. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.